So we're sitting down today, episode number 57, with an awesome guest. Super excited for it. Not only that, I'm super excited that I'm back in the lineup. I've been in a hiatus for the last few episodes, haven't been on it. This is Sheldon Grant from Panoramic Outdoors. And I also have two other gentlemen sitting across from me. Before we get into the guest, Chase, what's going on? What's going on over in your part of the woods? Hey, man. Um, oh, man. It's been a busy day here for me. Uh, let me tell you. We went uh, went to the woods with uh, the boys today. So the boys being my two sons and uh, their grandpa, my dad. And uh, we, we've been on this... Uh, I've been on this search this summer to to forge my own mushrooms, we'll say. And we've had a couple successful but unsuccessful events where we, we found mushrooms, but uh, they weren't really at the edible state. And uh, I've, I've kind of gone out to a few different places with high hopes, and uh, and we've put on some miles. I know you and I, Sheldon, we, we put on some miles last uh, on the weekend there looking for some. Oh, we did. And just to interrupt you, the best part about that day was the chips and dip, but as you can tell, we didn't find any mushrooms that day. That was a that was a solid purchase on your part. I'm always down for chips and dip. Uh, but uh, but today, um, with some some guidance uh, from our from our good friend uh, Josh McFadden, there he kind of let us know you know where the mushrooms would be and and like as in the ecosystem wise and what kind of uh, stuff we can find them in. And you went with them on one uh, expedition there and found some. So uh, eventually it led me to finding uh, a spot that we, uh, man, we got into some good mushrooms today. We found a bunch of lobsters and some porcinis and uh, some white lobster mushrooms, which are apparently extremely rare. And I found like probably about four or five of them today. But, uh, yeah, we had the boys out in the bush, and they had a good time. Nobody got stung by a bee, and uh, got a bunch of lobsters to take home and share with uh, family and friends. Man, that's pretty sweet, especially it was, like, super hot today. Like, I don't know what on your uh, neck of the woods, but here I think it was, like, 37 degrees. It was a hot one. Yeah, yeah, we, we definitely took advantage of the, the morning temperatures there, and uh, the woods were nice and shaded, so it was pretty decent. And by the time we were we – were picked our final mushroom there is starting to heat up pretty good so we uh had the ac cranked in the truck on the way home yeah for sure and then to bring in our third guy uh, around the podcast equipment here is our good friend our partner tristan what's going on over there who are you again <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> it's been a while <laughs> yeah yeah but uh good to connect with you again and uh yeah on our end here it hasn't been uh too much going on we're kind of getting into that harvest season though or that harvest season starting to uh kind of peak up on us uh we took out a bunch of garlic today and when i say we mainly carly but um kind of really impressed with the the garlic production that we managed to get away with this year uh some really big heads and uh, hopefully we'll be able to like it's almost like playing the stock market in some ways. You gamble, hopefully you get a good year, and then you have to choose how much of that you're going to reinvest back into your future uh, garlic stock. So uh, I think we did good this year. Uh, I'll take some more pictures of that garlic for uh, for the, the IG feed and so people can just do a little drooling. But uh, yeah, feeling grateful over that. So uh, nothing too exciting, but uh, garlic is kind of exciting. 
Well, gardening and like the harvest time of gardening is always exciting. I had a question for you though, Tristan. Now that the Winnipeg Jets are out, which sucks. Who are you? Are you you're, you're a hockey fan. Are you still cheering for for one team or the other? Man, I kind of default into that. I hate to say it, but I I default into that. Like once my team's out, I'll cheer for a Canadian team. I know you're a Dallas guy, but uh, uh, we won't hold that against you. But uh, yeah, I'm, I I'd like to see the cup back in Canada, kind of scenario. And uh, I know lots of guys and girls and folks around the world say that, oh, well, these other teams, they have more Canadian people on that team, yada, yada. They have more Canadian players. But uh, true, but I think you're going to see that on a lot of teams. doesn't matter where they're from. And, like, I don't know. Honestly, I'd just rather see a Canadian franchise win it. That being said, I'm glad the Leafs got eliminated. And it's not because I dislike the Leafs. It's just more so Leaf fans that I dislike. Oh yeah, I totally agree, hundred <laughs> percent. It's just like, man, that team. I I don't know what to even say about the Toronto Maple Leafs, but when you got one line that's making thirty five million dollars, it's just like, come on. And you got teams like Carolina and Columbus Blue Jackets and stuff like that, and they're like, like twelve of their players equals that much money, not just three. But but yeah, it's been a crazy year with uh, with the NHL, and now they have this uh, bubble in the tournament type style hockey. It's it's pretty exciting night tonight, but my Dallas Stars are still in it playing against Calgary. And to be honest with you, at the end of the day, I'll be happy whoever wins, but kind of more leaning towards Dallas. If, if Dallas gets the boot, who would you be cheering for? If Dallas gets the boot, probably Vancouver. And I and I hate Vancouver normally, but they they've got so much young talent, and I just man, I just love watching young hockey players play hockey. It's just a it's a totally different game. Um, I'm not gonna. Say that they're an underdog, but they they do have some. Uh, they don't have much NHL experience, and every game that they do, they do get to play is going to help them out in the future. So, I'm just yeah, I'm going to probably cheer for Vancouver if if Dallas gets knocked out. I like that pick. Uh, so stars aside, Sheldon, what else you been up to, man? Um, yeah, just like the same old thing. It seems like last time I was on a podcast was like in January. It seems like so. <laughs> Um, but I've been listening to what you guys have been producing and putting out, man. You guys have been knocking it out of the park. So hopefully I'm not, uh, deterring all the good numbers we're doing because of, uh, the production you guys are doing, but, um, I think we, I had think. A, we had a, go ahead. I'll say, I'm sure the fans miss you as much as we did. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure my dad misses me. <laughs> um, anyways, we had a great weekend though. Um, Swinging right into the what it, Tristan? What do you call it? The plate or the what's on the grill? What's on the jukebox? Yeah, jukebox, turntable, whatever your musical device. Maybe a track if you want to go. <laughs> and uh, what's on the tap? Well, on the weekend there, we uh, we cooked some a pretty sweet dinner. Um, Chase and I and Tristan you weren't there, but uh, Josh ended up coming out and our friend Tyler and Chase made some sweet flatbread and we smoked some venison on the pit barrel. That was probably that's I, I don't want to jump into those three things right away, but the the pit barrel man, I have nothing but good things to say about it, and they are a huge supporter of Panoramic Outdoors, and we're a huge supporter of them. Um, I've been cooking on it for the last three months along with you guys, and nothing but good things to say about it. It's very inexpensive uh, to to purchase and very inexpensive to use, and it's kind of like the you set it and forget it type mentality. Um, but yeah, I cooked some good venison on it. If you're wanting to get into a Pit Barrel barbecue, you can look them up, pitbarrelcooker.com, on the old interweb, and look for dis- distributors in Canada. 
Uh, if you're in the U.S., they have free shipping. So check them out. We have nothing but good things to say about them. Chase, what do you think of that meal? Man, I love that. I'm, I'm always a, a big fan of that meal. You know, um, you uh, we kind of adjusted things since last time I had it because you cooked that up for us in the in the ice shack there uh, when we were ice fishing this year, and you made like the the fancy relish salsa style thing that you you put through together, and which I have cravings for time to time, but uh, really stepped things up by throwing that meat on the pit barrel, getting that nice smoky flavor that like signature pit barrel flavor i guess we can call it and uh the flatbreads were a nice touch too yeah the flatbread was unreal <clears throat> and then like i said josh was there so it was kind of like we finally got to cook for josh uh doing our own thing but he still had to get his fingers in it uh <laughs> helped us out a little bit with with some prep work and etc but yeah it was a good good little meal um but that's what's on my grill this week sorry for jumping right into it but i love it man um on on my girl, nothing as creative as as you guys. Uh, I was out celebrating a, uh, or we had a little cabin get together, um, socially distant cabin get together, uh, to ship one of the boys off as he's uh, starting his foray into wedlock. So, uh, good friend Randy uh, cooked breakfast for some fellows there and landed up cooking some deer smokies and pancakes for uh for one breakfast a little maple syrup and uh i i kind of made me think that you know every year we make this abundance of sausage and you're looking at all this meat that you're cranking out and you're like what am i gonna do with all of that and like maybe you're questioning your your life at that point in time and why you committed to making so much tube steak but uh you know what the guys there loved it so that was kind of like it's kind of like a perk when you really get to share some of some of your harvest with everyone, and especially with no, new people, right? And then you get to talk about that process and what went into it and that kind of thing. So, not to humble brag, but you know, felt good, that kind of thing. Chase, nice. Are you gonna just double up on the Saturday night cook, or what have you been doing on the old grill? Oh, I'll, I'll toss it to today's grill actually. Before I came came down here, um, I took some of those mushrooms that I picked today and. I fried them up in some butter and garlic and a little bit of uh, uh, what you call it, that one herb there, <laughs> uh, rosemary. And then uh, I I bought these like, it's not wild, but it, it was unfrozen. So I bought these, these beautiful uh, shoulder cut um, pork chops and fried them up in the cast iron. And then I fried up all those, those, uh, uh, mushrooms in there so if i'm talking gibberish right now we know we've picked some bad mushrooms but uh i think <laughs> i'm good <laughs> but yeah it was it was it was awesome man it was a good good little feed of mushrooms and i i got a bunch here still so um looking forward to trying out some different plates with them and just just enjoying them in general yeah when we picked those mushrooms quite a while ago <clears throat> josh and i um the good thing about them is as long as you keep them properly they'll they'll keep for quite a while quite a while so you can you can cook with them for for you know three or four weeks to a month. Like I cooked my last bit like a month after we picked them. So nice. As, as long as you keep them well, you can cook with them for a while. Man, I was jacked up when I found that first first lobster mushroom. It was like the first like legitimate thing that I could eat from the ground that I that I found kind of thing. You know what I mean? Or the first fungi, I'll say that that was like in good shape. So 
I've been putting in some a few good days in in the woods trying to find them this year, and it was uh is certainly satisfying to. Was it like tracking a blood trail and finally seeing that tail on the gr- on the floor? Yeah, actually, actually, I can't even take the credit for it because Dad found the first mushroom. He found it. He was like, "Oh, look <laughs> at this! <laughs> That's awesome." And then, like, uh, my one kid was walking around with a stick. And uh, we'd find a mushroom, and then like he'd lift lift up all the hills in the area, and there'd just be like mushrooms coming out of everywhere. And it was like we we're out there for an hour, and we filled the basket. So sounds like a good day. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> turntable, Tristan. What's on your turntable? Your jukebox, your eight track. You know what? I your fu- disc man shock. My disc man shock. It only skips every thirty minutes. Once that any skip memory falls to pieces. Ah. Uh, you know what? Uh, I, I landed up stumbling across uh, another country artist that uh, is kind of uh, surprisingly twangy and uh, reminiscent of maybe some years gone past. And uh, this gentleman's name is Charlie Crockett. So maybe like a, hopefully I didn't like Christopher Columbus discover him in the sense that like everyone else knew that this was a thing prior to me um, listening to Charlie. But uh, yeah, just got a really sound like cool like old school nashville or even texas sound and uh yeah check him out he's uh he's worth a listen man you had him fired up around the campfire when we we're shooting bows there and then uh i had to show the boys um on saturday night there when when uh we were sitting around the fire too enjoying some food and and uh, enjoying a beverage so it's a good good pick if i were to say who do you got on the turntable then um besides charlie i've been uh headed back to uh uh, an old favorite, uh, Sturgill Simpson is, uh, um, what's that one album called? Life at Sea or something? Oh, yeah. The, uh, is that it? I don't think that's it, but, um, solid album. And I just put that thing on sometimes. And, uh, one of those albums that you just enjoy every song to. So that's my pick for this week. Sheldon, where are you at? Man, I got a couple. One credit is to Josh again, but that's, uh, Give Heaven Some Hell by Hardy, I think his name was. Oh, yeah. I don't know. We played it around the fire there. Man, that was a good tune and ended up downloading and listening to it a few times. But one that I, I really enjoy, <clears throat> and it was almost like brought me back to like Conway, Twitty, and Loretta Lynn kind of idea type songs was Alan Jackson and this Kaylee, I think it's Kaylee Hammock. They got a song called Lord, I Hope This Day Is Good. And it's like a duet and man it's just like it's good music and it just brought me back to the days when like my my parents were listening to it on like the record players and i don't know brought back some good memories so i'm like man this is a good song so i ended up downloading it and highly suggest checking it out at least at the very least nice nice definitely check that out let's uh transition to what's on the tap sheldon you want to start this one out oh not really i'm not a big drinker eh so um (laughs) Um, but no, on the weekend there, I actually enjoyed quite a few, uh, trans Canada beers again. And again, they, uh, they do their, they do their job. Um, refreshing cold trans Canada beers just on tap. And I had a couple different kinds, so I'm not going to pick one in particular. Tristan? Um, you, you know what I've been thinking too? We've just been kind of, well, A, because there's no rodeos on this year, trans Canada didn't, Lana pumping out their cowboy cure lager there, their light lager, which I'm a huge fan of. 
So if anyone wants to start a change.org petition and uh, lobby TransCanada to uh, come out with the Cowboy, Cowboy Cure again this year, um, let me know. I'll sign it. I'll, uh, I'll maybe even write up a little cardboard sign to go sit outside the, their uh, little location on Keniston there. But yeah, no, uh, just thinking about how, you know, lucky we are kind of in Manitoba where we got this craft beer resurgency. Maybe craft beer is a wrong word to use, but just this like good beer resurgency coming through and uh, just a lot of options. Obviously, we're fans of TransCanada, but uh, it's it's kind of cool to see how Winnipeg and Manitoba has been expanding like that. Chase, how about you? Nice. I had a couple. Uh, I don't often uh, kind of uh, stray too far from my usual uh, like whiskey brands, but I had uh, had a couple. Uh, oh, geez, I can't remember the name now. Um, Forty Creek. That's what it is. Yeah, Forty Creek. <laughs> And they're pretty good. Really? They're that, pretty good. that could yeah. have a night. We're waiting for that. <laughs> yeah, waiting for that. Well, they got a bit, bit of a different taste. So, um, yeah. So a little whiskey and Coke. 40 Creek. Enjoyed eh? that, yeah. <clears throat> Swinging it back around to TransCanada Beer. If you are looking for TransCanada Beer, they're a huge supporter of our podcast. So we like to support them as well. 1290 Keniston in Winnipeg. You can go there. They've got a tap room. They've got uh, merch and everything else. A little store. They also got food. So if you're ever like going in or in that area, stop by, check it out, have some food, have a beer. Um, you can pick up beer there. And they also have curbside pickup, I think, a couple days a week still. TransCanada Beer, uh, look them up on, online and see what they have on tap. Yeah, and uh, they do offer delivery services. And uh, But one thing I, would, I do want to say, if you see one of their, uh, their sours in, uh, in store, if you're lucky enough to find one, pick it up, try it out. Cause those things are sold out almost everywhere. So we're lucky enough to have a couple of the guavas this week and they're uh, pretty tasty. www.tcb.beer on the old interweb. Look them up, stop by, check them out. Whammy. Support them. And, uh, you guys, how about gear? Like I just, we're, we're getting close to fall here and I'm just wondering if you guys have any, I'm, I'm, I've been slowly adding, we'll say nothing big, nothing too exciting. Like I talked last week about that kind of uh rat river outdoors order that I put in, but, uh, got a few other smaller things coming along. Um, picked up a deer drag again that I'd lost, I'd lost my original in the bush and I kind of, uh, treat that as indispensable because sometimes we do whack one way back in there in the sticks and, uh. Maybe if you can't get at it with a quad, then yeah, you need something a little more sturdy than just a rope that's going to cut into your shoulder. And uh, I'm actually sitting in my uh, my Wind, Re- Wind River uh, kind of uh, insect repellent clothing at the moment, and it's uh, surprisingly comfortable. Like uh, they, uh, it, it feels like they actually paid attention to how they manufactured outdoor clothing, which is kind of kind of cool to see here so i'm i haven't had a chance to try it in the bush yet chase you wore your pants mushroom picking you said shorts shorts or the shorts yeah yeah they're great they're built really well they're um i don't know they fit me really well and they're just uh i don't know a great product i certainly didn't get bit by any bugs on my on my shorts i was getting bit through my shirt like crazy that wasn't a, a wind river shirt so that kind of sucked 
but uh yeah they'll this will probably fastly become my favorite pair of shorts i'm thinking so one little quick story i would tell, like to tell you guys is that my old man was looking for some arrows and he couldn't come into brandon right away quick so he phoned down to joe brooke to get some arrows cut and uh get some uh some aluminox so anyways he he phones down there gets everything set up and then i go down to pick everything up and you know really good service the guys are great there start talking to the one guy they hand me the arrows and they they're like well we didn't have the three aluminox for for your dad like the green ones that he wanted so we're gonna give him these yellow ones and we're gonna throw in these other green ones for free just because we kind of screwed up and it like really made me think about like these mom and pop shops that uh that are around this province and um, man, the customer service and what they have to offer with their knowledge is just, it's very, very valuable to the point where, um, uh, I was, I was just really happy when I left that, that place in Brandon here and, uh, just had to give them a quick free shout out because they, they went over and over and above what they needed to do to, to get a customer. That's for sure. It's interesting to think how, uh, a lot of these, maybe some of the, the, I remember Winnipeg had a lot more diversity with the outdoor stores prior to Bass Pro and Cabela's moving in and obviously they're they're a huge brand and they can they can price things at a rate sometimes that maybe some of the smaller stores can't compete at but a a lot of these rural communities are still getting served and served rather well by the as you identified Sheldon these mom and pa kind of stores and uh, as far as I can tell you know, the, the rates are comparable and, you know, actually I should say the guys at Rat River mentioned that, you know, they, they would, you know, kind of look at prices when they were talking about that powder stuff for me, which is, you know, kind of remarkable. And like, obviously the level of service that I got there was just ridiculous. So, um, yeah, I hope, uh, I hope these, these stores stick around and I think the only way we can do that is just trying to be conscious with our dollars obviously as sportsmen like we know how that's important in conservation but also like think about what these small businesses do for your communities and things like that right they're employing local people you know employ they're usually giving back to the community in some way and those you know those dollars you spend there are staying in in that community so um uh cool thing too about rat river you know lots of the the smaller stores sometimes you find the they might not have the the best like website selection, but check out their website, man. They're fully like everything's on there, and it's very easy to to navigate and and look for anything that uh, you might want. And if you can't find it on there, just give them a shout, and I'm sure they'll be willing to help you in any way they can. So totally, and <laughs> yeah, that's Rat River Outdoors. You can find them on the internet, RatRiverOutdoors.com. Uh, they've been in business for like over 10 years, uh, created by outdoorsmen for outdoorsmen is kind of their slogan. Uh, their slogan. Their lo- <laughs> <laughs> wow. Maybe I ate some of those mushrooms. Um, but yeah, they started their e-commerce store in, tw- in April of 2020. So they got everything that you may need on there. Uh, check them out. Um, they're kind of your one-stop shop for hunting, fishing, and, and now trapping. So any of you trappers out there that need to uh, not only might get equipment, maybe need to get some advice, etc., Give them a shout or stop them, stop by, and that's in St. Pierre's Jolie. And are we going to have those fine folks on the podcast, do you think? We are planning to get them uh, prior to the trapping season. 
So hopefully November-ish, maybe October, November, somewhere in there. So if you're listening to this and you got some burning uh, trapping questions, make sure you get them into us early here so we can mark them down for that podcast. Yeah, boy. Anything else on your guys' end or should we jump right into this podcast? Who do you guys talk today? Talk to today. I wasn't uh, I wasn't able to sit in on this one, so I'm kind of curious. Man, we got a we got a just an amazing dude from that's massive in the whitetail world, and I don't know. I just think he's got a spectacular like program or whatever you want to call it. His lifestyle around pretty much revolves around whitetail, and uh, yeah, amazing lesson in my mind. Yes. Yeah, he's got, uh, in my opinion here, my personal opinion, one of the best shows on Wild TV. Uh, all his shows are also on YouTube, which is not like other programs. Like, there's a lot of programs that don't put it on YouTube. So, if you're looking for it, that's Dean Partridge, um, Canadian Whitetail TV. That's right. So, that's who we have on this podcast. He's an awesome guy to talk to. We even talked after the podcast about getting him on again and talking about other topics. Um, you know, maybe later on or after the deer hunt season. So, um, what a great guy. I mean, a good guy to have, uh, in the arsenal for, for getting like basically just a, a walking resource when it comes to whitetail and whitetail management, etc. So really happy to have him uh, on this podcast episode. Um, we've got a good, a good one to come. No BS either from that dude, which I love. Yeah. Straight up. Will this podcast make me a better deer hunter? Do you want the short answer for you? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. This podcast will give you some good information and some good insight on, on you know, maybe a little bit more to the trophy hunting side of things rather than, uh, you know, shooting the first deer that comes out. A little bit of management, uh, a little bit how to scout, etc. There's lots of good information. Yeah. Awesome. Fire guys. it up. Looking forward to it. Let's roll it. Right on. So tonight, sitting down with Canadian Whitetails, Dean Partridge, man. Thanks for uh, taking some time out of your busy schedule to to sit down and have a podcast with us. From my understanding, your boots are on the ground doing a lot of scouting for this upcoming fall. Yeah, it's it's busy time of year, that's for sure. But it's kind of nice to take a break and cool off because it's been hot the last couple of weeks. And we've been setting up blinds and stands every day. And heat is not ex- exactly what I'm built for. Yeah. <laughs> What uh, what kind of temps are you guys dealing with over there right now today? Uh, we've been it's been all been all this week's been thirty four, thirty three, thirty five. So yeah, that's it's, hot. It's plenty warm until I talk to my friend. You know, I talked. I got a lot of my friends are in the states, and I talk to them, and they kind of they kind of laugh at that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, they're dealing with hot temperatures more more often than us. But man, I don't know. Like anything over twenty five degrees is almost like you're getting that really uncomfortable zone for me. Anyways. Yeah, and it's, it doesn't matter what you do. Life's not perfect. We will look forward to summer. Like, setting up is probably the favorite time of year for us. But I, I sure wish that something would happen where the setup season was October. Yeah. Right on. Well, speaking of hot, we're going to jump right into the five burning questions. This is something that we do with all our guests, or we try to do with all our guests, and just try to get a little bit of a different side of you. Um, people that do know you know you as a, as a whitetail hunter, but we're going to ask you some maybe left field, right field kind of questions to get this podcast going. Um, the first one actually is related to hunting, but um, talking about the heat already, but what is your favorite season to hunt when it comes to whitetail hunting? 
or the late season. And it, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of the cold. You know, I mean, it's it's not it's not the most fun, but the the colder and more miserable it is, the the funner deer hunting it is for sure. I think. Yeah, the best thing too, like for us or for me, um, I love archery hunting that early season. But I mean, the bugs and the heat can really wear out a guy. Where when it comes to the colder seasons, you can certainly bundle up for it. Oh yeah, uh, when the bucks are all rutted up and froze up, and you know frost coming off them, and it's about as yeah. good as it gets. A totally different experience for sure. Um, you spend a lot of time in the blinds and the tree stand. What's your favorite snack? You know, we 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 don't spend we don't do a lot of whole day sits like up at our camp. All of our hunters hunt dark to dark, but for us, the way that we hunt at home in the farmland, they're usually only a few hours sit. So the blinds that I go with and the guys that come hunting with me, it's usually kind of a no snacks allowed deal. As quiet as possible. <laughs> I don't know if that'd fly in our in our camp. <laughs> yeah. Right on. So question number three, if you had one last concert to go and attend, uh, who would you go and watch? With? It could be someone that's still around or, or somebody new. Oh, I don't know. I'm not a big, I'm not, I'm not really a big music guy. I mean, my favorite music is just kind of whatever's on the radio. Um, but showing my age a little bit, probably a lot of the ACDC, that kind of stuff would be a little bit more up my alley. Yeah, I think that's in all of our arsenals too. ACDC, Metallica, all that kind of old heavy rock. Um, so number four is if you had one last meal with a beverage, what would you be, what would you be eating? Oh, I think probably rib steak. Probably just a rib steak and cold water. <laughs> nice. And then my last when question. Thirsty, when, you're, when, you're, when you're thirsty, not much beats cold water. No, that's true. That's true. And my last question is, when you're not hunting, um, where can we find you? What, what, do you? what do you like to do on your days off or, or when you're not hunting at all? There's, you know, it, it kind of sounds like a prepackaged answer, but there's not a lot of no hunting days for us. Um pretty hard pressed to find a day that we're not doing something with deer but the our kids are getting older and they're into hockey which is pretty good so we're at the rink a lot right on and that wraps up our five burning questions i guess chase do you have anything else to add on those five burning questions any sub questions quick nothing nothing immediately i mean uh i'm sure we might get into this a little bit but uh i do have a few questions that are kind of branching off from that why don't we get into conversation first? Because I feel like this is going to tie right into with a lot of that, what we're going to talk about here. Perfect. Yeah. So, Dean, you have, uh, you're working on your 11th season of um, Canadian Whitetail, which is a, a show that you can find on Wild TV and on Pursuit in the US. Um, how did it all start for you? Like, where did you cut your teeth in the industry and, and who kind of taught you on how to, how to do things and, and continue growth? Well, our 11th season, believe it or not, is 10 seasons further past what it was ever supposed to do. Um, we had really, you know, no aspirations or, or goals kind of kind of to be doing this in the sense that when I was younger, um, I mean, it, it all kind of started as a parody in a way. And when I was younger, the, we didn't have the big networks and stuff. So we had Sunday kind of TNN on the, on, the, on the TV on one of the three channels, which would be like three or four hunting shows that existed at that time. And. And we'd watch it, and uh, one of my dad's um, old good friends, Steve Sismar, we'd watch it, and we would, not not in a degrading way, but we'd kind of poke fun at some of these guys that would be, you know, they'd just go state to state to state from different outfitters and shoot the first 100-inch two-year-old deer down the road and high-five that they killed a Boone and Crockett deer, and we, we kind of got a kick out of it. So at one point, we decided that we'd make one archery hunting video that had 10 or 15 hunts on it of 
kind of big deer and, and, and the way that we hunted. But but I had no idea how to do that, uh, you know, or even way to, where to start. And, and I'd actually started talking a little bit, uh, just running into him with Jason Peterson. And we got talking about more and more, and, and I was telling him I wanted to do this video, but I had no idea how to do it. So he was kind of at the other end of the spectrum. He was never a, really a hardcore whitetail guy, and he was all over the place, and he was already producing his show, Hunting Canada and Beyond. And uh, we kind of came to the agreement that he would give me all the gear and lend me all the gear that I would need to make the video. And in turn, he kind of wanted a little bit more whitetail content for his show, so we would just do a, you know, we'd, we'd supply him with a couple hunts to run on Hunting Canada and Beyond. And... We finished that video and we called it Full Draw Whitetails. And I, I think the trailer is still on YouTube. It's terrible. Um, but there's some pretty big deer and it's, it's, it was a pretty fun video. And then when we finished it, that was, that was kind of the end of it. I mean, we just wanted to do our Canadian version of hunting TV for, for trophy whitetails. And the network kind of approached us about doing a, a show. And Jason kind of was trying to twist our arm to doing a show. And he said, you know, there, there's nothing, you know, there's no 100% whitetail stuff in Canada and guys would like it. And our biggest concern was just our deer hunting ourselves because, you know, even back then a lot of guys were asking about, you know, how to kill big deer. And, and a lot of our friends would be, you know, they'd play, be playing slow pitch. They'd be at the bar. They'd be, they had a hundred different hobbies. And we always used to tell them, well, every one of your hobbies that you're at, we're looking for deer. That's the, that's the only difference. And when your only hobby is kind of deer hunting, we didn't want anything to kind of interfere with that or change that. We weren't willing to change how we hunt or, or do anything kind of differently to match what the network wanted to do and the networks promised us that you know they wouldn't interfere and i said well i don't think anybody's going to watch it if it's just how we hunt because there's not really a lot of high-fiving and there's not a lot of antics and stuff so we ended up producing the first season and it seemed to go over pretty well and then all of a sudden it was 120 episodes later and i guess this is just what we do now <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty pretty remarkable. And like a couple things too. Like I've been watching your episodes and stuff for the last few years. And my dad got me into your program. Um, and one of the things that I really do like uh, about Canadian whitetail is just like the, how you incorporate your family and and how it's actually just a way of life. And that's in my mind. Like I don't think it would matter if you had ten million dollars or ten dollars in your pocket, you'd still be doing the same thing. So it's it's pretty remarkable to watch those those uh, those episodes for sure. Well, and and we wouldn't, you know, and we've stuck to that for the last, you know, 11 or 12 years that the day that we wake up and what we're doing has to change to kind of match what we're doing for production. And I mean, that's, that's when we're, when we'll wrap it up. It's just, it's kind of one of those parts of your life that you're not willing to sacrifice. Um, and it, it's been great, you know, and, and that's not a complaint. It's been great that it's grown. Um, the, the earlier years, they were pretty tough. You know, I was working in a steel shop. Like, right out of school, I got my welding tickets, and I started working at a steel shop. But everywhere, even everywhere we worked, it was based around deer hunting. So our goal, you know, at the steel shop I was working at, the goal was to work hard enough that there's no way that they could live without you, and then I could start making my own hours, and they couldn't say no. So, you know, we started, you know, Steve would do the same thing with the hours of his work. I would go into work at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning so I could be off by 1 or 1.30 so we could get out to hunt deer. And, uh, you know, when everything kind of revolves around around deer hunting, you get a little bit guarded in, in kind of network guys calling, wanting to play around with that, right? Man, uh, this amazing conversation we're having right here, I, I love the fact that you're, like, from day one almost, or from your just you knew what your passion was and you just like 
laser focus on what that and your life completely revolved around how do I get more time in the field pretty much and how do I get more time deer hunting um when when you grew up did would did you have a similar upbringing to that so like uh, or how did you get into the the deer hunting like what really got you going deep no no definitely that's kind of how it was right from day one my, my dad was a pretty pretty hardcore bow hunter um and he was i mean a lot like we were in the early days he was a lot more modest about it you know we but back in those days you didn't want anybody to know that you were you know hunting or shooting big deer we, we had a pretty my dad had a pretty impressive trophy room in our basement and i remember when i was a kid that you know like if he actually invited somebody down there to have a look around it was a big deal you know and, and him and steve hunted together for years and lots of people that hunt would stop by and not even really know they hunted or that they'd shot a deer because it was just for them you know it was it was kind of their thing um i remember when i was pretty young uh, a fellow named gordon eastman came up and he had come up and was filming a little bit and doing some shed hunting with some local guys and he had stopped by and, and i'll never forget he wanted to film uh one of my dad's hunts and my dad had always bow hunted and to film this deer hunt, they wanted him to use a shotgun and they wanted to do, they wanted, he wanted to change things up so he could get better footage from how my dad had things set up. And that was just the end of the conversation. And that's kind of what carried on with, with, you know, with our deer hunting is the conversation ends pretty quick when guys want us to change, you know, kind of what we do or how we do it. Yeah. We, we've, uh, we kind of find that uh, a little bit in the industry also, just, uh, some people might want to change things of what, what, uh, you originally set out to do um well i don't think they're being mal like and it's not it's not an industry thing where they're being malice about it. it's just people have creative ideas you know we all the time we have guys you know well why don't you you know why don't you come down and hunt you know in the midwest or do do a couple episodes down here well there's nothing wrong with that and i'd love to but our deer season's open here so you know it, it's not that it's not that you, you you would never be okay with some of those kind of changes or changing things but it just doesn't fall in the line. You know, we've had some pretty good opportunities to go on some pretty neat hunts and some elk hunts and stuff, and it's all great, except if Saskatchewan whitetail's open, then we're pretty much out. Yeah. Yeah, no, I feel you on that for sure. Uh, so you did uh, a bit of uh, big bush hunting. You, you'd mentioned kind of the, I think you said North Country or the bush, and uh, some farmland hunting also. And I, in my, like, personal deer hunting endeavors now we we kind of grew up hunting the the bigger bush and uh did a bit of guiding up there and uh i kind of live in the in the ag land area now though and so i'm kind of transitioning to uh, archery hunting on the ag land and sheldon i know you've been hunting the, the ag land but i tried taking this like big bush mindset and coming to the ag land with it and trying to in my mind thinking like okay why can't i hunt during the day in the ag land kind of thing and why am i not going to shoot a deer and i i can't say i've put in enough time to figure that out but what uh what are some of the major differences there for for you uh, between those two ecosystems oh yeah well for us it's big like for us it's all it's almost two different species you know we everything changes up at our camp where all of our hunters come up you know we, we take some great deer and most of them are shot at you know 10 11 in the morning lunchtime by three o'clock in the afternoon, if our hunters haven't tagged out, I mean, they sit till dark, but she's probably a wrap for the day, you know, and I drive, you know, 400 kilometers to my farm and we don't even get in our stand till three o'clock in the afternoon. And I haven't hunted a morning in the farmland in probably 10 years. 
you know, we, we've we've put in a couple all day sets if we want to get in early. But the the deer, and I think it's mostly just pressure based. You know, up at our camp, the the there, there's so little pressure up there, and and the big bush just changes. It changes their core, you know, their, their core kind of kind of lifestyle. You know, the the food is different. Everything is different for them, and their movements just so unabated. And and I think that's why guys kind of enjoy coming to our camp so much because you get to see, you know, a pure unpressured whitetail. What a pure unpressured whitetail really is. I think in the south here, where we hunt, and it's the same as you know the Midwest U.S. I think what we're hunting is an altered version of a whitetail. It's it's a whitetail that's trying to live, you know, in a farm life. Right, so that the whitetail is kind of evolving around the, the ecosystem that it's it's given, and uh, well, yeah. whitetail are certainly very good at that. Um, from what I've been told, they're they're almost like a invasive species up here. At at one point, you know, they they kind of evolved and and came north, and now they've uh, done a good job adapting to to wherever they're they're kind of placed into. That's for sure. Yeah, that's, I mean, we find some pretty big deer in some of the most obscure places, and we hunt a lot of public ground, we hunt a lot of private ground, and we hunt a lot of ground where, you know, there's other hunters have permission, and then we've got a few spots of our own property that we hunt, and we, you know, we take, we, we'll take our own property and turn it into just a, a whitetail haven, where you would think there would just be big bucks and butterflies skipping around, like, and it you know, you drive down the road to one of the highest pressure kind of pieces of land and then you find a great big, you know, a great big seven, eight, nine-year-old deer that's been living there his whole life, but he's just got it figured out. Yeah. Yeah, they're smart. Yeah. Do you even find yeah. during, during the rut that they, uh, you can't catch them slipping much at all during the day? Oh, I think, you know, and, and I know guys don't like it when we say it, but we, we've often kind of said that there's no such thing as a nocturnal deer, just poor planning and and that's that's us too i mean we've had deer that we've had really hard times getting encounters with in the daylight more often than not it's just our fault you know we've made adjustments on deer and adjustments on deer and then all of a sudden it clicks you know and steve, steve that we produced a show with i mean he, he shot one of the biggest deer of his life in 2010 and that deer is a prime example we hunted the deer for a couple of years we did maybe 11 or 12 setups we could find the deer we could pattern the deer to what we thought it was but just always nocturnal 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 and we sat down and we said well maybe we're wrong maybe this deer just doesn't move in the daylight and it was the one last setup i mean we adjusted things we made things so it'd be more comfortable for him where he was moving and then all of a sudden on the trail camera he was in the middle of the afternoon he was on his feet all the time and you know we steve stuck in there and killed him i think on his second set and every deer that we go after like it just that just seems to be how it happens that the more frustrated we get and then all of a sudden we'll adjust something and all of a sudden oh that was the problem like that was the problem all along yeah and that kind of brings me into the kind of the next topic here is uh you know where and how to find big bucks i mean i think that's a question that a lot of people like to like to talk about targeting big deer i know like just what like i said watching your episodes and stuff you guys do a lot of like deer management in certain areas as in watching smaller deer grow up and, and, and keeping an eye on them. And, you know, year after year, if they're back there um, in your scouting season, you're, you're kind of keeping tabs on them. But going forward, um, what are some of the, the tips and tricks that you like to, to put into your game plan to, to target these big bucks? Well, the ones that we check in on, I mean, most of them don't live. And that's kind of been always been the problem with the show is when people watch an episode of the show, they're just really watching a 20-minute highlight reel. Um, 
So if we have a buck that we watched, you know, the, the deer that Steve hunted last year on the show that aired this year, I mean, it was 10 years of history with that deer. And if you just watch that show, it makes it look like there's 10-year-old bucks everywhere. Well, for every one of him, there's easily 20 bucks that never made it. You know, they disappeared at three or disappeared at four. It's, 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 even in Saskatchewan, it's hard to get the age on that deer. But you have to cover ground and you just have to be, you know, kind of committed to it. I mean, we pass up a lot of nice deer and they're not deer that we'd expect anybody else to pass up if they want to or not. You know, everybody's tags, it's their own decision. But, you know, a lot of times guys will shoot a deer worried that if they do leave it, he might not survive till next year. But the only way to guarantee that that deer won't be there next year is to shoot it yourself, right? And I think the the quicker that you kind of get onto that track and the quicker you stop worrying about whether or not you're going to shoot a deer this season, the the better your results kind of kind of get to be. And we, I mean, with us producing the show, guys always think there's pressure to always shoot a deer, always shoot a deer, always shoot a deer. And we kind of bucked that trend. I mean, I, I shot a deer this past season. It was the first deer I'd shot since 2016. Steve hasn't shot a deer for three years. And that seems to be kind of our average. Every two or three years, if you kind of average it out as how often we take a deer. But we're not looking at November as a deer season. It's, it's you know, there's really no starter end to it. So the, the time that we actually get to hunt is just the time of year that we have a weapon in our hand. And if by the end of the season we haven't taken them, it's not the end of our deer season. It's just the time of year that now we're going to look for sheds and then we're going to try to set up again and we're going to try to adjust things and maybe we'll get them next year or maybe he'll be a year older and a year bigger. So I think a lot of times deer hunters just have to take pressure off themselves on it has to happen now, it has to happen now, tonight's the night, and just kind of step back and look at the big picture on on what your goals are. And if your goal is to kill a really, really big deer, you're, you're probably not going to do it every single year unless you have access to incredible big tracts of land and that's the other problem we run into with deer management we do a lot of deer management things as far as water and food plots a lot of that is for our our own enjoyment it's it's kind of like a pastime and a hobby that we enjoy doing the effectiveness on the deer it's not maybe as great as a guy would think because you really need a lot of land so when we do our plots and we do our water and we do kind of all our management stuff it might be the you know it might be 160 acres so you're really you're giving them a good spot to live and it's a fun place to hunt. But as far as actually controlling any kind of environmental factors on that deer, I mean, I think, and some of the bigger land managers we talk to in the States kind of agree. I think you'd pretty much need 2000 acres of private land and a deer that lives in the center before you can start actually managing, managing that deer. You know, the, the things that we do for deer, it's kind of for enjoyment, but it's, it's kind of a wing shot on whether or not that deer still survives because the amount of time that he's going to spend on that property, especially come the rut, is going to really kind of give you the – it's going to cause you to lose the upper hand on, on whether that deer survives or not. I guess in the same breath, though, you could say that you're providing the the, the best environment you can with, uh, with the tools that you have available to you to uh, possibly keep a deer around or make him the, the healthiest animal that, uh, that they can be, right? So well, – yeah, and you're always improving your odds, right? Because so the better that you can make that property, you know, the 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 more attractive it's going to be to be his home area. In the rut, that kind of all goes out the window. But also, the better that you've made that property, and the more attractive you made that to deer in, deer in general, is going to increase your deer density there with does and stuff. Which, you know, whether whether he's running does or what he's doing, that's still going to increase the amount of time he's on he's on his feet in that property too. But there's a lot of enjoyment 
you know, like we really enjoy the deer themselves, you know, maybe more so than hunting or shooting them. So there's, there's also a lot of enjoyment and, you know, you work on a plot, you put a water source in and you, you kind of tailor that land to the deer and then you get to go sit in your blind or you go sit on the edge of the field in the summer with the kids and watch the deer. There's a lot of enjoyment and a lot of reward there just to see, you know, the, the environment you've created for those deer to thrive too. Oh, the amount of time commitment and, and, uh, just overall commitment in general that you put in for, to build these, uh, big bucks and, and go after them and just must just increase the, and skyrocket the, 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 uh, the journey and like watching these bucks grow up and, and, uh, being able to harvest something that, that you've kind of watched and, and, uh, help helped uh build pretty much right must just be incredible yeah well the, i mean the deer themselves are fun it can, it can be kind of a fine line between where you're you know an environmentalist versus a hunter because when you when you get to watch those deer sometimes you know sometimes that line kind of gets a little blurry the, the deer that i shot last year we'd watched that deer for quite a few years the the longer that the season went on i i hunted that deer well, I think I spent the, that episode's airing next week. I think I spent 20 days in the blind or something, but that was over, you know, a 60 day period. Cause we were only hunting it when everything was just right. And it wasn't going very well. And we were second guessing whether we should have moved, but we were on public ground and, and we didn't have a lot of options to move and, and all that kind of stuff starts creeping in. So you get more and more frustrated and then you have the history with the deer and you get, and you get kind of frustrated with the deer. So, you're really anticipating, you know, getting a shot at that deer. And then on day 20 or whatever it is, when he finally walked out, it's just kind of unique because the first thought wasn't like a high five thought. The the, the first thought that hit my mind was kind of like, oh, why did you do that? Like you, you only had a couple more days to go, a couple more days and you, and you won. Like, you know, you almost get, you almost kind of get mad at the deer for, for slipping up that day. But it doesn't take anything away from the hunt. I think it just kind of makes it that much more enjoyable. And Steve's deer that, that he hunted last year was a perfect example. We're, we're not a hundred percent sure, but we're pretty certain that that deer is dead. We watched that deer for years. That deer got, we watched the deer get shot. I mean, he's a stud and a warrior of a buck. Steve had several encounters with him last year and didn't line up to get a shot. And the last one, he walked right up to about 15 yards and he had to turn left for Steve to shoot him he turned right and walked away just like he was taunting us and a lot of times when guys watch that it's like oh you must be so upset and I like I don't want to speak for Steve but he's I mean I was sitting in the blind with him he wanted to take the deer but you know to watch the deer walk away was was kind of rewarding in its own the deer did survive the season he shed his antlers but uh, we we're pretty we're pretty sure that he's dead now and that's what we find with a lot of the mold boxes like the severe weather, winter weather will kill bucks right in the winter and early in the spring. But the 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 bucks that we tend to watch at die of old age, a lot of times it's like June and July when they when they die. Huh, that's interesting. Why why what uh, what do you think gets them in June and July? Is it uh, predators or well, just 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 not that having that great food source? Well, I think they've got a good food source, but the, like some of them, some of these bucks are old, you know. So it's it's the equivalent to a, a very old person and. The winter's really hard on them, and some will die in the winter, but we had a pretty easy winter here. But, you know, from November when they leave the rut until things green up in the spring, it's like a marathon. And I think some of the old guys, when when they're in rough shape, they just can't, like even in the spring when things green up, they just can't recover. You know, they just, yeah. they just they're they old, they've got 
you know, body systems shutting down and they just can't recover because a lot of our local bucks or bucks that might kind of live on our farms and stuff that we've watched for years and years and years, a lot of the times when we find them dead, it's June, July. Mm, that's interesting. They've got, they've, got the, they've got the feet. They've got the feet and everything, but I think they're just they're just old. You know, they're, they've just just too far. They've kind of lived out their lives, and and the winter kind of knocks them down, and and they just they just can't get it back. You know. Yeah. So when we're talking about these these big deer, um, you know, a lot of preparation goes into it with with scouting and and placement of cameras and cameras, etc. If you could just give me a number quick estimate of how much how many man hours you personally put into scouting and how many cameras you put up like i'd love to know what like how how much you actually get done you know what i mean yeah i think i'd probably need a calculator like math was never my my thing (laughs) how Uh, how about like a daily estimate of of your time time spent well out of 365 days of the year for steve and i i would imagine that 320 of them would have something to do deer related whether we we're looking for sheds, checking cameras, you know, putting out a putting out an attractor and putting in a plot, there's there's not a lot of days, you know. There's we we have hockey days, and then my son races a stock car, so those days we don't make it out for deer. There's there's very few days that there's not something deer related, and then the cameras and stuff, you know, that really varies year to year because we we I mean we cover a fair bit of ground, but we've kind of got our spots, and we we don't. We, we kind of generally don't expand from that because, you know, it's the same out where you guys are. There's people hunting everywhere, and we don't want to kind of encroach on them, and we've got our spots. And depends on what's around for deer. You know, if there's some pretty good deer around, we're going to have less spots out. Um, I think in a year, at one time we'd figured it out between camp and between, like, between our outfitting camp and, and at home in the farmland where we hunt, we're probably setting up and taking down around 200 stands a year. But one stand might, you know, we, we might be hunting one buck. We might hunt that deer like I did last year, all year at that one stand site. The next buck, we might do eight different setups on them throughout the fall, just as we're kind of adjusting and learning and, and trying to get in a better spot. That's a pile of tree stands. Wow. Well, mostly ground blinds, mostly ground blinds now, and we just we we just have a bad habit of calling anywhere we hunt in a stand. So oh well, yeah, a lot of ground blinds. That, that's why we kind of went. That's largely why we went to ground blinds too, is because uh i mean just time wise with with the tree stands like the ground blinds we can you know steve and i can set up a ground blind just about anywhere and make it work as far as fitting in uh the tree stands in central saskatchewan kind of where we hunt it's all poplars and and there's some areas where tree stands are good but there's big areas where we hunt where they're all just crooked you know snotty trees where they don't work and you know a ground blind we can kind of have it down and moved and back up and everything kind of set up pretty quick so it's it's been kind of a, a creature comfort you know, rather than necessity to go from from mostly tree stands to ground blinds. So you're talking about tree stands to ground blinds. You kind of mentioned it here that uh, it's a little bit of a comfort level for for you guys as well. But what are some big disadvantages you find going to a, to a ground blind? Um, asking just kind of on my own personal question because I, I hunt a lot of tree stands and we don't do ground blinds a lot. Um, but, yeah, what, are, what what do you find your disadvantages of setting up on the ground? Um I think once you kind of get on to where to set the ground blinds up, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of disadvantages. I mean, we've done we've done pretty well on the ground. Um, you know, some of the advantages are, are with filming too, with you know having a cameraman there and a tripod and a camera. 
it can give us a little bit of advantage over being in a tree stand as far as having the extra, you know, the extra body up there. I don't know if there's a whole lot of disadvantage, disadvantage you, there. Do you guys generally set up uh, your ground blinds in, uh, I guess, the same fashion you would set up a tree stand, kind of find your spot and get some shooting lanes kind of picked out? Or is there a, is there a different sort of uh, um, tactic, I guess, that you can employ? Because you can set ground blinds up in a lot more places than you can set a tree stand up, right? So. Well, and I think that's one of the big advantages is we can set up where we want. So we never ever try to let what we want to set up dictate where we where we set up. So the, the where is kind of dictated by the deer and what we think is right. And that's what we kind of find restrictive sometimes about a tree stand here is, you know, we've got a 50-50 shot if we can even get a tree stand in there. And then we find our, our opportunity at taking a deer starts to go down when we start negotiating backwards with it ourselves. So if this is, you know, if we find a spot and this is the spot, Every step we take away from that, like if we want to move over here a little bit because the tree's straighter, or if we want to move over here a little bit because there's a little bit more cover, we found that that, that every one of those steps is kind of reducing our chance of success of success on that deer. Whereas a ground blind, you know, as long as you have some cover, I mean, we've had we've we've brushed ground blinds in in tall grass and, and taken big mature deer out of them, so you can usually you know you can usually get a ground blind where you want to be. Yeah, for sure. Um, just kind of going to switch gears. We kind of talked about locating these big bucks. Unless, Chase, you have anything else to add on to, the, nope. to that part of it? All good, man. I want to kind of switch gears and kind of go into a, uh, a hunting episode that you guys aired. Um, maybe you can like kind of dissect it a little bit if you'd like. But that episode that you had with you and your wife and you guys found a deer, um, a shooter buck let's say that was close to home where she could get out and and do a little bit of hunting because she was wasn't hunting for a little while um can you tell us that story uh i don't know if i i might get in trouble again because she didn't see that episode until it aired so i wasn't really (laughs) mr popular for some of it Um, (laughs) but i just but but no i mean those episodes are really what the show is you know my my wife loves hunting and she doesn't get a bit, you know, she doesn't get a lot of chance to hunt. And again, people only see, you know, a 20 minute highlight reel of our hunt. So, you know, we had a lot of good comments on that episode. We had some guys saying like, well, it must be nice that, you know, you just take her out and she shoots a 210 inch deer. Well, she has earned that buck far beyond what any of us have ever earned a deer for just dealing with what we've been doing for the last 10 years with kids and stuff. So she's had to put a lot of her stuff on the back burner. And that, that's exactly what happened is one of the bucks we were watching that was close, close to home. You know, the one year he blew up and we thought we were going to hunt him or we thought we were going to shoot him. And we hunted that deer quite a bit that fall. And we de- we decided it was Rochelle's buck because it was close to home. You know, my, my mom or the kid's grandma could come over and watch the kids and she could be, you know, back and forth. And there was two or three days left in the season and the deer walked in and he looked about like what we thought he was. But we, it was all, it was completely left up to Rochelle, and she asked, like, are we, you know, she kind of whispered or nudged, are we shooting? And what we had told her before was, at the deer's age and the amount that he was growing, you know, he's a big deer, he's a hundred and eighty some inch deer, but he would probably be better the next year. So, like after fifteen or seventeen days in the blind that year, and she seen him in person, she decided to pass up with a couple days left in the season, and it was a pretty good decision because the next year when we started watching that deer, you could see right away he was throwing extra junk and stuff, and then kind of later in August you could see he was he was going to go right past two hundred inch deer no problem, and uh, 
I mean, it was great that year. I got to sit, like I sat with her every night in the blind and that was kind of a treat that we hadn't get to, gotten to do for a little while. And I mean, it was just a gorgeous deer and probably what a lot of guys, you know, seen in that episode was she missed them at about 18 yards, which was fairly, fairly kind of crushing on her just because, you know, the amount of time that she'd put into it and the deer and the amount of time that we'd all put into, you know, trying to film this and stuff. But if, you know, a lot, a lot of the, the guys that kind of hunt big deer that we know when they watch that episode, they can kind of quickly point out that, that, that a lot of that issue was my failure. Um, she made kind of all the right decisions in the sense that, you know, the buck turned in, he went perfect broadside, she drew her bow and deer walked in right behind him. And we see it all the time. Most guys just shoot the deer and he runs away and he's dead. Well, we we just never shoot a deer with deer with other deer behind them because you don't know what that arrow is going to do if it passes through, you know. And there's a doe and a fawn back there, and we're not risking you know some deer running away with an arrow stuck in its leg. So, in the episode, you can even hear you know she said she can't shoot because there's a deer behind them, and I said, yep, I know. And she's at full draw for way too long, and we even cut it in the show a little bit for time. But she's got her bow, you know, at full draw too long, and she's and she was starting to shake, and I could see that. And that's, you know, probably one not one of my proud moments because I think it was selfish out of my sense that when that doe stepped clear, I said, now, like, now shoot him. And it's kind of where my selfishness on, on wanting us to get that deer kind of took over. And I, I've guided a lot of hunters up north, and that's that's a bad trait because the guide in me knew that after her holding her bow that long that we had to stop. Like, she had to let her bow down, readjust, and shoot. Uh, but I told her to shoot and she shot low and that wasn't a real high highlight night that night. <laughs> that's tough, but man. Think... That's there's sorry, Sheldon. I, there's a lot of I, different things and a lot of variables there and a lot of motion coming through there. And like, I mean, if you stick a buck and then have an arrow hanging out of another deer's leg, that's definitely not making it to the show. So <laughs> that's like, I mean, yeah. well, we, we, I see it all the time on like outdoor TV and that like, arrows going through and almost hitting deer and stuff and i i, I don't know there's, i think i just often kind of felt those deer deserve better than that kind of thing and it, at the end of the day it is only a deer that, that yeah, we're trying I, to get so it's not worth hurting the other ones yeah and i, I think that like that's why i kind of brought this episode because i i think it's like a good representation of what you bring to the table when it comes to your with your program with it with ethics and with uh, family and bringing everyone and getting everyone involved, etc. So that's why I brought up this episode. So she she ends up, you know, missing this deer at 18 yards, and sure as shit, this deer comes back. Yeah, and and when she and that's what she like. Even that night, you know, she was upset, and she wasn't necessarily upset for herself, but she was upset because there was this feeling that she'd kind of wrecked it, that there was this big deer on the go, and it was her buck, and she'd spent all this time, and now it's all for naught. But that's, I mean, that's what I explained to her even after that night. Like, it's just a deer. There'll be more deer. There'll be one tomorrow. And we don't even know. And, and it's not the first deer that we've missed. Trust me. But but after that night, you don't know. You know, so some of our friends are like, well, what are you guys going to do now? Are you moving the spot or what are you doing? You don't know. And, and it's, it's kind of our method of hunting deer. You know, we never hunt two bucks the same because they all have different personalities and they all have different perceptions and different tendencies. And that was the case with that buck. So, we, we couldn't make any decisions because you don't know what's in that deer's head, you know? So when he ran away, you just have to kind of 
put yourself in his place. What just happened? If he thinks that somebody just shot at him out of a blind, we're all done. It's over. But, you know, he you have no idea of knowing what, what just happened in his head. And everybody that hunts deer sees how tightly wound up his deer is. If you watch somebody miss a deer, that deer kind of jumping and running away, he does that 704 times a day to squirrels, to branches dropping, to walking over a ridge and a deer gets up that was bedded there and it spooks them. That, like, that's their response. That's why they live, because their response is not to look back. They just go. So that could have been a very traumatic experience for that deer, and he's never going to come down that channel again. Or that could have been nothing, you know, and you don't know. And I went back in, and I went back in late. You know, it was... I don't know what it was, 1.30 in the morning or something. The one day I went, I walked all the way around and went in there to check the camera. And I took all my stuff with me to get a spot reset up because I, in my mind, I knew what we would do if the deer was kind of off the grid. I kind of knew what we would try to try to set up for. We checked the camera and she'd have killed him two days later. You know, and when we went back in there, when all the conditions were right, that deer hadn't, I mean, it was just completely obvious that deer hadn't had a clue what had happened. He wasn't... He wasn't a dumb deer by any chance. I mean, he was a pretty smart deer, and he's a mature deer. And just the way he reacted after she missed him, you, you could tell that he, he had no clue what had happened. And the night she did kill him is a good example of that all in kind of one piece of footage because he walks in, and it, I was so heartbroken for my wife because he walks in, everything's perfect, it's going to happen. And a truck and a cattle trailer goes rumbling down the road like they do every 25 minutes. And he looks over there, and you could see him kind of alert, and he's watching the road. And the alfalfa field that was behind us, there's one deer back there, or there was a couple bucks back there, but one of them runs in off the field. Just like when you're driving down the road and you see a deer on the field and you stop, sometimes they stand there and stare at you, sometimes they run away, right? Well, when he ran into the edge of the bush, he ran right through our channel. The buck looked at him. He looked back out in the field. He doesn't know what's going on, but he, in his mind, it's like, well, if he's leaving, I'm leaving. So he turns around and trots out with him. And that, that I found that crushing for her because we had missed a chance at him once. And then she had him at 20 yards. She just needed like one step for him to turn a little bit more to get a good shot. And he took off. But on that same piece of footage, I mean, you barely even have to cut the footage. It's 16 minutes. He loops around and comes right back through the channel to go to the field. And she didn't miss that time. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, that's un it's unreal. But, but that experience for, so that deer coming in off the field and him hearing, like hit that, that truck kind of alerting him and the noise and that deer running in off the field. And then kind of moving back through there, that's the exact same scenario. He left. He wasn't, he wasn't scared. He, you know, he doesn't really know what happened, but in his mind it was okay, and, and he just came back through. Yeah, that was a, it was quite the, quite the episode. I really enjoyed it. And like I said, with the emotions going through, I think, through everybody sitting in that blind and, you know, with, like, the oh shit moment with uh, missing, but then, the, you know, it actually coming together and happening for her. It was just like... Just like the perfect episode, I thought. And I, I always thought that was kind of one of my favorites, so that's why I wanted to kind of bring it up and kind of get you to tell the story on the podcast because I think it's a great one. One thing I did want to ask you, Dean, while we're kind of on the on the TV stuff currently is just like how what's what's the major evolution that you've seen over the last past, say, like uh, 10 years from when you started to, to where we are now, in, like technology-wise and and uh, differences between what, what you were doing and what you're doing now? like video work and, and production and stuff oh well it's i mean it, it's changed a lot and we we kind of do things differently um we, we try our best to, to show the process so that you know if you set up 
150 ground blinds a year that can get taxing because every time we set one up or we move it, we film it all because we don't know if that's going to be the spot, right? Um, and we tend to be kind of anti-recreate and you see it, we, we, I mean, we can spot it because I guess we produce a show, but a lot of times you'll see a ground blind getting set up and it's not even remotely close to the one the guys are hunting out of, but we film kind of every step along the way. So regardless of which hunt works out and which one doesn't, we have all the pieces there to tell that story. And it can get kind of tricky because, you know, a lot of the hunting productions where they, you know, are, we have a lot of guys come to film at our camp. So they come there and they can have a shot list because they're going to show up on this day. They're going to hunt these five days. They're going to leave on this day. And they just have their checklist of what they need to capture to build their, their, their film. And then they have it wrapped up. Well, you know, if I start filming Steve on September 1st this year, I don't know if we're going to wrap that up in four days. It might be three years, you know? <laughs> um, so there's an, there's an incredible amount of footage. Our episodes are not, you know, I, I know they're not, you know, produced to the quality of like a Heartland Bowhunter or something, but the, the archive portion of our show makes it extremely challenging to, to put together because, you know, the deer I shot last year is a prime example. You know, I know, I, I know we filmed that deer every year since 2011 and you've just got hard drive after hard drive after hard drive to go back and find it. And you just, you know, you kind of narrow your footage down by every night you hunted on that property because you don't remember if it was September 7th or September 12th that you filmed that deer. Um, so there's a lot of footage, you know, and that kind of leads back to that 20 minutes of high re highlight reel. There might be four years of, you know, setting up and, and, and swearing and, and less than highlight reel moments just, you know, before that hunt actually kind of finishes itself. The, the equipment's got a lot nicer for what we do because, you know, all the equipment's gotten cheaper and smaller and, and more durable. So for us that we're, you know, we're kind of always on the go. We don't have time and room for the, the big production stuff so it's, it's gotten a little bit better there but but it's uh there's a lot of footage behind some pretty short episodes i guess kind of my last thing kind of getting stuff wrapped up we don't want to take up too much of your time because we know you're probably headed out to the field here right away as well um tell us a good hunting story what's what's going on in in dean partridge's life right now or you can tell us a good hunting story that you know it could be a past episode it could be anything let's hear it does it have to be a true one <laughs> no we, this can be perfect for the listeners they can guess if it's if it's bullshit or not i guess well, no no, no the, there is there is a good true one that that a, that a lot of guys don't know um and it kind of leads back you're asking how we got kind of started and I, and I said we'd get gotten the equipment from jason and and started that way jason and i became really good friends but the first hunt that jason and i ever did together was an episode that we filmed for his show and you know, he was on the road and he was in Alaska and he'd come back and he was in Yukon and he came back and he hadn't shot a whitetail yet. I used to terribly make fun of him about spending so much time on donkey deer and these mule deer and no time on whitetails. And I said, well, how can you, like, you know, you might have shot a moose and a grizzly bear and a 220 inch mule deer, but your whole season's pretty much a failure if you don't shoot a whitetail. Um, so I said, I've got a spot and I'll take you to it. And in my mind, like, so at this point, Jason and I weren't really good friends. And I thought, well, here's a guy that can solve a problem for me. So I've been hunting a deer all season on a property. The deer, like the easiest way to put it, the deer was kind of wimpy. So there was an old buck in there, like a 10-year-old buck. We named him Killer, and he was just hard on all the other bucks in the area. So the deer I was trying to hunt was a 6-year-old deer, and he was a he was a really nice high 160s, perfectly clean typical. 
And I'd seen him seven or eight times throughout the year, but the problem was this, this buck that we called Killer is always out there and always run him off, and I never even came close to getting a chance at the deer. So I told Jason, I said, I'll make you a deal. He said, we'll go hunt, you know, like a borderline Boone and Crockett class deer, but the only catch is if this other deer comes in first, you have to shoot it. So if the old buck comes in, you have to shoot it, but that's the price you pay for a chance to shoot the big one. He's like, okay, I don't care. So we go and we get in the tree, and we get in the tree at 258. At 304, he elbows me, and he says, there's a buck coming. And I looked up, and I couldn't see anything. And he said, no, I went right through the trees right there. And I thought, well, whatever. This guy's this guy's a lunatic. Like, there's no deer. <laughs> and he's watching, he's watching, he's watching, and he elbows me at my foot again. And we're, we're in a tree stand. He elbows my foot again, and he's going right there. So I look over, and I can see horns in the tree. And I'm thinking, my plan is working perfectly. Like, he's going to shoot this deer. We're going to be out of here before it's even prime time for deer. And I'm going to be back all next week, and I'm going to kill the big deer. And I look over, and the deer that I've been hunting all year steps out. There's not another deer in the woods anywhere. And he just walks up and he stops and he turns broadside at 18 yards. And oh, Jason my. looks up at me and he says, what do I do? I said, you kill him. Like, you know, you have to. And he shot the deer and it's, we used it in our open for a long time, but it's one of my favorite clips of, of Jason, especially now without him here, because it was just a testament to who he was. And the arrow hits the deer, the deer, I don't even think the deer ran 20 yards and fall over. And he, Jason just starts squealing. I just shot your deer. And <laughs> I mean, it was so funny because he was so apologetic and I kept telling him, I'm like, hey, I mean, I made the deal and it kind of blew up in my face. So, you, I mean, <laughs> oh, that's unreal. You killed, you, you killed the deer. But but that was that was the first time that we hunted together, you know, actually in a stand. So it was it was a pretty kind of kind of a neat day that 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 day. And that day, I probably would have wished that he'd killed the old buck. But, you know, looking back now, I'm pretty glad that he got the deer that he did get. That's an incredible yeah, get, story. For sure. And certainly, uh, certainly a good one to uh, to remember him by, I'm sure. But yeah, so you got to spend a little bit of time with Jason, and, and that's a pretty wonderful story. And uh, for anybody that knows, probably understands what where that's coming from. Um, but you kind of mentioned the the donkey deer, the mule deer. Is it true that you've only shot one, and you've shot one with your bow in in your in your yeah. life, or have you shot a few now from then? No, I just shot one, and even that one was out of spite. <laughs> we were hunting a, we were hunting a giant giant typical whitetail there and he disappeared for quite a while and we were pretty pretty certain he was dead and this mule deer had been coming through every day so that's how we wrapped it up and then we we, we kind of took him for that but we i mean it's it's we, we kind of teased the mule deer guys but it's not it, it's kind of bullshit we, we're not that serious and, and if you want to see people get upset this is when we call them donkey deer. We like we used to make tremendous. We used to poke fun at Jason all the time about wasting time on these mule deer, and guys take it so seriously and get so upset, you know, where it was just poking fun, you know, fun at our friends like J- Jason and Cody and these guys that we know that, that spend so much time on the mule deer. We used to just tease them about hunting, you know, spending all this time on mule deer, and it, it just turned into kind of a, a, a rolling joke. We don't we don't actually have a significant, you know, beef with mule deer at all. Um, and a guy might be into hunting them if it wasn't during whitetail season. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And last little tidbit that I'm going to ask you going forward here: your biggest deer, biggest whitetail, is it 231, 231 inch? Yeah, it was 230 something. We're not real big score guys, but right, right there. Uh, that's unbelievable. Um, 
but yeah, we're going to try to wrap it up here, but uh, what's coming down the pipe with uh, Canadian Whitetail? Like you said, you're working on the 11th season. Anything else that uh, you guys been been doing and anything to look forward to in the future? Well, I, I mean, it's not a great answer, but we really don't know until it happens. Um, our deer this year, uh, the guys that film kind of east with us, you know, we have the, the team that films with us. I mean, we've got a great group of guys that kill some pretty big deer. It's a pretty good horn growth. Central part of the province around where we are, it seems like it's not the best this year. Um, but there's some pretty nice deer around there. there I mean, there usually is pretty good deer around if you look close enough. So everybody's going to have a deer to hunt. But we don't uh, we don't really know how it's going to work out until it works out. Yeah. Can't predict the future when it comes to hunting, that's for sure. Well, we try. I mean, we've tried for a lot of years, but it hasn't worked yet. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much for coming on. We're going to wrap this up by kind of doing a final thought. One of these things that we do in all our podcast episodes or we try to do and just kind of uh, reiterate what we talked about for the last um, last bit of time here. But basically all I'm going to say is that um, it's it's been kind of a process to get you on on our, or on our um, program. I, I'm really thankful that you took the time to do it. Um, and like I've said a few times throughout the, this podcast episode, just the stuff that you represent and, and the ethics family, et cetera, I mean, the list can go on and on. Um, and so I think there's a lot of people out there that really appreciate that aspect of your program and uh, keep doing the good work, man, because uh, getting good content and, and being able to not only that, but like learn from your, you have that one segment in every episode about scouting or um I can't remember what exactly what how you how you name it, but all those little things, man, they go a long way, and I really appreciate it. So, thanks again for coming on, uh, Chase. You got any final thoughts there? Yeah, it's uh, it's been a great conversation here, Dean, and um, man, it's truly uh, an honor to feel like I'm talking to like a a whitetail wizard here right now. I guess a guy could say or a, a master, and just listening to like the the time you spend and the 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 amount of dedication you have and the, the uh, ethics and the willpower to let these these big bucks turn into monster bucks uh, over like decades pretty much is just incredible and it's incredible to hear and it's incredible that it's an, it's an entire family thing for you and that it's just like sewn into your, your bloodline pretty much and um, those are the kind of stories I love hearing and, and uh just kind of how it all evolved and and it is where it is now so um great conversation man and thank you very much for uh taking the time out of your day to come chat with us no i i appreciate it and we we don't do you know we don't do a lot of podcasts or kind of public thing speaking things because we're we're a lot better deer hunters than we are public speakers or or (laughs) conversationists but on the whitetail wizard side, I mean, a lot of that is Steve, and uh, that'll be a good conversation for you one guy one day because I think you know the Steve that that I've been kind of lucky to lucky enough to hunt with since uh, since my dad passed away when I was pretty young. He's uh, probably forgot a lot more than than I know, but uh, but everybody watching the show is kind of what makes it possible. And and uh, we don't do enough podcasts and new public stuff enough public stuff, but we really do appreciate it. And and the only reason we don't do a lot of public stuff is just because. Yeah, just better deer hunters and public speakers, but it's nice to see Canadian guys getting into the podcast thing, and uh, we kind of want to support that if we can. Yeah, thanks. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. Um, 
but yeah, other than that, yeah, we we might have to take you up on uh, giving Steve, uh, you know, maybe giving him a word or two about coming on our podcast in the future. It'd be great to have him on. Big fan, so that'd be great. You'll probably need a lot more than an hour and a few beers. <laughs> well, that's a, and that might just get you. That might just catch you up to 1985. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Dean. Thanks for coming on again. For everyone that is listening to this episode, you can catch Canadian Whitetail on Wild TV on Pursuit in the U.S. And not only that, but he's also got a lot. Is it? basically all of his episodes on YouTube as well. So if you're looking for a certain something, um, just search his uh, Dean, Dean Partridge, Canadian Whitetail on YouTube. You can find a lot of a lot to all of his episodes there. So thanks a lot for coming on, Dean, and we'll chat with you soon. Another phenomenal episode in the books. Thanks for listening, folks. And stick around here quick for um, a quick update on what we have in stock for apparel for you and what's new. Sheldon, you want to take that one over? Sure. We just actually restocked all our camo hoodies in every size. So if you're looking to get into a good hoodie for the fall, hunting or fishing or whatever it may be, it's a 10-ounce hoodie. Um, it's it's bigger than probably your, like, thicker than your regular hoodie. They're super warm and they're super comfortable. Anybody that's bought one is uh, giving us great feedback on them. They're going to last you basically forever. So check those out. We also have the new, what we like to call moose necks, which is basically like a tube or a buff or whatever you want to call it, a neck gaiter. <clears throat> They're on sale right now um, in our website. You can get one for 23, two for 42, or three for 60. Um, they're, they're awesome. You can use them for basically anything. I've been using them for a mask actually around uh, Brandon because COVID is like running rapid right now. Oh my god, I can't talk today. But anyways, <laughs> those uh, those are also in stock. And what else? We got um, camel hats. Camel hats are now in stock. I'm picking them up on Friday, so they're going to be fully stocked up, as well as our black and blue moose hats. Um, with the, just just the one moose logo in the in the bottom right hand corner. They're all up and going to be stocked. So all of our stuff is basically there, except for the one thing is our kind of our signature hoodies, which are the black and gray ones. They're so far behind with. Uh, with shipping, etc., that we're not even, uh, we haven't even ordered them yet because everything's so far behind from COVID. But uh, keep checking our website out. We appreciate everybody that buys our apparel um, and wears it and tags us in their Instagram, Facebook photos. We love seeing what you guys are doing, what you're, or you know, what you're catching, what you're doing out outside. So keep on doing what you do, and uh, we appreciate every every one of you. For sure, and. By the time this episode airs, I'm guessing that this will kind of be the last kind of hurrah before the season actually opens. So if you're listening to this, we're going to wish you luck in the woods, in the water, wherever you may be, and hope you have a great opening day. Shoot straight. Keep your powder dry. And keep an edge on your knife. Keep an edge on that knife or your broadheads. Or your broadheads for that matter. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll catch you down the road.